take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and our study on the book of Ecclesiastes, an important study, particularly in the day and age in which we live, and it is quite an age for sure. In light of the events of this past week, some of the Supreme Court decisions that were handed down, pastors all across the United States have been put in an unenviable position of having addressed to address these, these matters, and yet at the same time, I consider it a privilege to do so based on true truth, what the Bible says and what God expects of us. I understand that no matter what I might say, it will go too far for some of you and not enough for others. Tried to make this as succinct as possible, addressing the issues of the day and to assist our people, God's sheep entrusted to me, to think biblically through this matter. Somehow cut through the cacophony of voices that is at best unhelpful and at worst grievously destructive to a nation and dividing of the nation's people. As I address this, there will be times again in the future that we will do so again. And I will remind you this morning that it's not a time for celebration or gloating, but a time for serious and sober reflection by God's people because we live in tumultual, tumultuous times, and we must speak clearly into those times. I have scripted to the best of my ability my comments this morning, so I won't let my emotions or other things get in the way, although you may conclude that I already have. I make no apologies. On Friday, June 24th, at around 10 a.m., the Supreme Court released their decision in the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. It was a constitutional challenge to a Mississippi Gestational Age Act that limits abortion to the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. It was a clear reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. Well, certainly, a Supreme Court decision that upholds the sanctity of life and the value of personhood, it does not bring justice for the more than 60 million babies that were killed legally since 1973. And to be clear, and this is critically important for God's people, this decision does not eliminate the practice of abortion. Abortion is still legal in the majority of places in this country and Bible-believing Christians must continue to teach and live the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and the sanctity of personal responsibility clearly articulated from the beginning, recorded in Genesis 1 through 3. I'm alarmed that many who claim Christianity, even those who uphold the truth of the Bible, still choose to separate their orthodoxy or right belief and their orthopraxy 
right practice. To be clear this morning, you are for Christ or you are against Christ. You are for truth or you are against truth. You are for the notion that every human being is created in the image of God or you are against that. You are for the reality that God is the author of life and only He has the right to take it away or you are against that. It is time to stop pretending. And there are a lot of pretenders in churches across America today. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot plant a foot on the side of truth and a foot on the side of the culture and believe that there's a third way defined by your truth. I have zero interest in your truth. And if the truth is to set us free, the truth must be found in the only person that can set us free. And the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Christ Himself. The Dobbs decision reversed the 1973 court decision, Roe v. Wade, and only pertains to the question of constitutional abortion. By the way, the Supreme Court, in spite of what you hear, has overturned its own precedents more than 230 times in the history of the court, in spite of the cries of the dissenters. Inflammatory language from the left has called this decision a sweeping decision that affects contraception, same-sex marriage, and unrelated matters, which are not helpful, but they're very purposeful and, of course, political, even though it's not true. The decision handed down Friday simply returns the responsibility to the states, in particular the legislative branch of the government. For more than 50 years, the House and Senate were unable to codify abortion into law, unwilling to go on record in favor of the destruction of life, but instead chose to use the Supreme Court to legislate. As elected representatives, they're well aware that there's a great risk in losing the support of the people, and yet I wonder if perhaps for a fleeting moment, we the people is a greater reality today than it was in the early morning hours of June 24th, 2022. In oral arguments, Chief Justice John Roberts pointed out that the United States is less protective of the unborn than any nation of the world. Even the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg expressed serious legal concerns with the arguments upholding the Roe v. Wade decision and is being vilified now from the left for not retiring sooner and for offering verbal challenges to that Roe Wade decision. Upon its announcement almost immediately, President Joe Biden, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, former President Barack Obama, and many others, all used incendiary language to create a firestorm of division that was echoed by world leaders. Only hours after the United States Supreme Court overturned Roe Wade in a landmark ruling on Friday, President Joe Biden addressed the nation, expressing his disagreement with the decision, saying that the decision expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. The media immediately, in an organized way, began to argue that the Dobbs v. Jackson decision reflects an extreme ideology. This is vacuous 
and inflammatory rhetoric, as is the call by some for violence that became reality over the last couple of days and may get worse before it gets better. Isn't it fair to at least question, is a full attack vilifying and delegitimizing a branch of the government of the United States insurrection? It is increasingly clear that there's a ruling class and there are those who are ruled. And there are leaders on both sides that abuse that privilege and create strife and division for political purposes. And this is one of those cases. In addition to our own elected and appointed leaders, including the ruling elite, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau weighed in, as did French President Emmanuel Macron, stating abortion is a fundamental right for all women. Interesting enough, in France, abortion, legal abortion, is limited to 14 weeks, less than, less than the time of which this case was settled on. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz stated that women's rights are being threatened by the Supreme Court decision. And in Germany, it is impermissible to abort a child beyond 12 weeks. Leadership in England spoke against the decision. It is illegal to abort a child after 24 weeks. And in Russia, beyond the 12-week mark. Of course, China weighed in as well, which is baffling to me. Welcome to the world of globalism, perhaps a clear premonition of what is to come in the last days. One question. Did you know that only six countries allow for elective abortion on demand throughout all nine months of pregnancy? And the United States is in that category. Six nations globally. It is an abomination. So what is the way forward for those who believe in true truth? Truth that is timeless, provided to all people of all ages through the pages of Scripture. Certainly, we can be thankful for this first step in protecting the sanctity of life. There's no time or place for gloating, because we are still in a cosmic battle for good versus evil that began in Genesis chapter 3 with the entrance of sin into God's created order. This battle will rage until the time when, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Until that time, we are given the responsibility to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to tell the truth, to confront error, to stand in opposition to evil, and to be bold in our witness, yet compassionate toward all. Real compassion must be rooted in true truth, and we cannot bifurcate those two things. Telling the truth to a world who has no desire to hear it, and in many ways despises that truth, is our calling. It is our command. It is my privilege to stand in opposition to abomination, to be light in darkness, to declare hope in an age of hopelessness, and to offer forgiveness in Christ no matter what the offense. That is the good news of the gospel. 
So in our faithfulness, we cling to the truth, we act in compassion, and we understand that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We do not get to pick the age in which we are born, but we must rise to the occasion in that age. So, in this present age, we will live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul, as he writes that, underscores to this young pastor declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. For now, may our lives be worthy of the gospel, and may we be reminded that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we wait, diligently doing the will of God in Christ Jesus to His glory alone living as light in a dark world with the hope that a better day is coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Father, we live in a desperate age where confusion abounds, and even in Your church, there seems to be this inability to connect the dots and understand that truth matters. Give us clarity, give us courage, grant to us a compassion. Separate the wheat from the tares, those who are in and those who are out. If necessary, purge your church that the gospel be not harmed. But in this increasingly antagonistic age where we are singled out, for our belief in the Bible and the absolute truth of your revelation to all mankind. God is faithful. Without, we're not without our fears and our worries and our concerns. Teach us how to give those to you. Let you worry about the things that we cannot control so that we might give attention to the things that we can, a faithfulness and fidelity to your gospel. Remind us this is not our home. We are simply passing through as you prepare a place for us in heaven and will return to get us. So shall we ever be with you. For such a time as this, we are here. May we be faithful. May we be bold, may we be courageous, may we be compassionate, may we be about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth that sets men free. May you do what you've always done through all ages, rescuing the ungodly, transforming them, participation in the kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ. If you would be so kind, let us be a part of that for your glory, we ask. 
In Jesus' name, amen. What a hard way to start a service. It's the right way to start a service. Are you in? Are you out? What are you looking for in your life? What are you striving for in the reality of this life under the sun? What is it that matters most as you sort through all of these big issues and then hang on, even in the little issues that take place in your life? Where's your comfort? Where's your security? Where's your happiness? And where's your joy? When this book of Ecclesiastes is a part of the wisdom literature of Scripture, that is exactly what the koheleth, the, the convener of the assembly, the pundit, professor, the teacher, is trying to get across to us. As he wrestles through the realities of life under the sun and tries to make sense of what's been entrusted to him, we find him wrestling through things that each of us must wrestle with in our own lives. And some would take the book of Ecclesiastes to be this uh, dreadful, discouraging, depressing book that says nothing really matters, but you have misunderstood the whole context of the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's a man who has been endowed with great wisdom according to 1 Kings, and yet he had to live under the sun. And he will say that his wisdom remained with him as he tried to sort this all out. You know, each of us are in the process of sorting this out. Each of us are in the process of evaluating our lives, and <clears throat> the, the older you get, the harder that becomes. Because you're running out of time, and you're less distracted by the realities of the world. But you're still under obligation to pass on what you've gleaned and learned to the younger generations of the family and the church family. And I believe that's exactly what the Koheleth, this teacher, Ecclesiastes, is all about. And in chapter 2, as he has worked through this process, in chapter 2, we come to the place where he, he reveals the vanity, the emptiness, the, the habel, the, the, this, this meaningless chasing after the wind that is manifest by the vanity of self-indulgence, living for self, living based on our own personal whims, doing what makes us happy without any sense of its consequences. And as we get to this text, he begins to write in chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And behold, this also was vanity, and I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I builded houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and I planted them in them <coughs> all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house, and I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who were before me in Jerusalem. And I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, 
both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. Whenever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I want to remind you of messages a number of weeks ago in our study on Ecclesiastes, and remind you that what we see taking place in this book of Ecclesiastes is a writer who is grappling with the realities of life under the sun, and throughout the whole book of Ecclesiastes, he takes different kind of approaches and perspectives and considering life from different points of view. Well, the purpose of commending one view over another. In essence, we find time and time again this notion, I thought in my heart or I measured in my heart. Much of this dialogue was internal to him as he was wrestling through this, and, and only to the end of his conclusion does he call the assembly together and says, now let me tell you what I learned in all of the toil that I have attempted in trying to make sense of life under the sun. At times, he comes across as cynical, that life is meaningless and it doesn't matter at all. And you must hang on to the end of the book until he gives us a clear understanding that that is not what he's trying to communicate. At times, he comes across as a hedonist. Perhaps chapter 2 manifests that. I just got everything that I could under the sun to make life work. And yet that, too, is found wanting. I believe that in essence, the Koheleth, this Ecclesiastes, this, this teacher of the assembly, is an apologist. And he's saying, So anyone who would hear, let me tell you what doesn't work, and let me tell you the only thing that does work. And we have to hang on until the end of the book until he makes it so plain and clear to us. But he will give us hints throughout the course of the book as to the reality of that. But he kind of bounces back between these identities as he he wrestles with life under the sun. Have any of you wrestled with life under the sun? We all have to a certain degree or another. We continue to do so. Days like Friday remind us that we have to, to make sure that we maintain a perspective that is holy and righteous and of God. Remember, his whole point was to live his life in such a way to ask the question, what does a man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun? What is the point of life? Why am I here? Where am I going? Why does it matter? And we find in verse 13 of that same chapter in Ecclesiastes where he says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. And it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. When he says that he applied all of his heart to seek and to search out, this was a diligent commitment of his mind of his emotion and his will. It was a consuming thing. It was encompassing every aspect of of his life. He's trying to figure out why and what works. 
in essence, he set his mind to, to pay attention to and to determine what is the reality and essence of life. It is deliberate and thorough and deep and wide-ranging, even though there's nothing new under the sun. And here's what sets him apart from us. Here is a man who was writing who had unlimited time, unlimited resources, and unlimited wisdom granted by God. And we say, boy, I wish I had that kind of life. Let me encourage you. He says, that's not the kind of life you want. It's chasing after the wind, and it really doesn't matter. And yet we still convince ourselves as God's people, well, then just a little bit of that. And maybe just a little bit more, and maybe a little bit more, God. If I only had this, I'd be happy. Here's a man who had everything, and he said, boy, it was kind of disappointing. Disappointing. As we wrestle through this, and as he wrestles through this, again, he reiterates in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, and I will test you with pleasure. Let's purpose to find what is good and pleasurable under the sun and, and, and what is enjoying and brings enjoyment to life. Now, listen carefully. God has blessed us with certain things in life that we can take pleasure in, that we can enjoy, that do bring us an ounce of, of happiness or at, at least a little bit of contentment. When he goes down through this text, he's not saying all of these things are evil. He's just saying, if you put all of your eggs in one basket, if this is the only thing you measure your life by, then it is not worth living. He's not saying these things are wrong. We've made this atrocious interpretation of Ecclesiastes saying that, well, if you have money, you must not be godly. Don't be an idiot. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you can't enjoy life and you can't take pleasure from life. He is simply saying, I was now going to, to seek out and measure the level of happiness that you can achieve under the sun, outside of God, and the things that God has given to us. As he carves God out of that equation, he finds that everything that he was blessed with came up more than a little bit short. And he concludes, behold, this also is vanity. It's empty. It's deceitful. It promises what it cannot deliver. It's like chasing after the wind. It's like Rockefeller saying, what would it take to make you happy? And his response, one more dollar. It's the conclusion of the Coleth. It's the conclusion of the writer of Ecclesiastes. I said of laughter, it is mad. There is trivial things that we laugh at that are irrelevant, but pleasure, those things that we, that we can enjoy under the sun, what use is it? I searched with my heart. Remember, this is an eternal struggle before he convenes the assembly and, and, and lays out his conclusions. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with, my, with wine my heart still guiding me in wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the days of their life. What will bring me happiness? What will secure for me joy? Why, why, why am I here, and where am I going? What, what can I rest in by way of contentment? He begins, of course, by speaking of the issue of wine. 
It's not like he was a connoisseur of fine wine, and this isn't a treatise on alcoholism or the abuse of alcohol. He is simply saying, well, I'll try that. I'll try some of the finest wines to take off this edge of emptiness that I feel with everything that I have under the heavens. But he will conclude that that brings no sense of of happiness or joy. Interesting, he then goes on this this list of accomplishments and achievements in a self-indulgence kind of way, a self-aggrandizing kind of way. And I've often said about chapter 2 in the book of Ecclesiastes that the writer suffers from an eye disease, not E-Y-E, but I-I-I. For those who suffer with an eye disease, it means that you have replaced the King of kings and Lord of lords on the throne of your life with your own desires, and it's all about you. But it's never been about us. It is all for the glory of the King. And the writer of Ecclesiastes has to wrestle with that and through that. So listen to what he says. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. He's talking about his own personal residence. It took him 14 years, more than 14 years to build the temple, and another seven or eight years for him to build his own palatial spread. He knew what it was like to build for satisfaction. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I like to sit on my porch and look at my yard, manicured lawn and the flowers, and say, boy, doesn't that look nice? Look what I did. I don't have what he had, but a few days later, I sit on the porch and say, look what I have to do. I got to mow the lawn again. I got to weed the gardens again. What's the point of all of this? It's not that it doesn't bring satisfaction, but it's fleeting at best, isn't it? Obsessive, compulsive at worst, how we define ourselves, in fact. The writer of Ecclesiastes is undermining those realities. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. There was no expense. The engineers creating irrigation systems. I bought male and female slaves. This isn't a condoning of slavery. It's just the reality of the time in which he lived and slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. That's how they measured wealth back then, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I like when he says that. He says, now listen, for those of you who say, boy, I'd love to have a little bit of what you had, I'd make the best use of the things he saying, I have more than anybody else, and I'm telling you, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I can give you everything that I have, and it will not bring you happiness. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces, jewelry and riches and spices and perfumes. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, even that pursuit of of sexual delight and desire, the light of the children of men. And his conclusion and all of its arrogance, so I became great. And I surpassed all that were before me in Jerusalem. I found pleasure in my search for pleasure. Also, my wisdom remained with me. You want to talk about the goodness of God? (laughs) God didn't take away his wisdom. 
even though he was running after all the wrong things, his wisdom… Aren't you thankful that we don't have a vengeful God who strikes us down at every whim and every fault and failure and mistake that we make? God in His graciousness never took away that gift of wisdom because it was that gift of wisdom that would eventually allow the Koheleth to work through all of this and come to the conclusion, fear God and keep His commandments, for that's the whole duty of man. We have this notion sometimes, as soon as we get out of step a little bit, God takes away and in some vengeful kind of way makes us pay the price. Listen carefully. For those washed under the blood, He has separated your sin as far as the east is from the west, and He is for you even when you're not for Him. He has sealed you with the ministry of His Holy Spirit. He has given you a direction in life. And sometimes we lose our sense of direction, but God never takes away what He promised to us. Isn't that glorious? My wisdom remained with me. That's great. What a great phrase. God, in some vindictive way, didn't didn't spank me or take me to the woodshed. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. How would you like to be in that position? Whatever I wanted, I got because I could afford it. Some of us are still pursuing that whole thing. If only, if only. The reason he convenes the assembly after wrestling through all of this is to disperse this notion if, of, of if only. He's saying, listen, I've been there. I've done that more than anyone before me, and it doesn't work. My heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was the reward for all of my toil. And that's a really important caveat in this passage of self-indulgence. He is not saying at all that there wasn't some fleeting pleasure in these things. Did you catch that? My heart found pleasure in my laboring, and I looked at my house and my vineyards, the irrigation systems and the servants. I looked into the room that contained all of my silver and gold and jewelry and those valuable things, and there's a certain amount of reward for how hard I worked in life in pursuit of those things. There was some pleasure in that. Yet eventually he'll conclude, verse 14 of the same passage, the wise person has his eyes in the head, the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. He says, now, what happens when my life comes to a conclusion. What then is the reward for all of my labors? And it's then when he declares, none of that stuff matters. To enjoy the things of life, every good and perfect gift that comes from God is a commanded charge of Scripture. This notion we walk around with our tail between our legs, uh, suffering for Jesus, never happy about it. That's not what the Scriptures teach us. For in Christ, we have everything. We have a full inheritance waiting for us when we see Him and become like Him. He has blessed us with the ability to enjoy the simple things in life. But there comes a point in time that whether you are a fool or the most accomplished person in the world, when your life is required of you, it puts a perspective on those pursuits 
those things that were pleasurable that oftentimes can't be found in the good days. So as he considers that his life will end just like the life of the fool, the guy who has nothing because he squandered his inheritance, he will die. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it, all of the hard work and labor, and behold, my soul was required of me. All was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The end of the day doesn't matter. He's going to tell us later on in the text that it gets even worse than that. And now we had to take everything he amassed and give it to his inheritors. And he said, I don't know if they're fools or wise. I don't know if they're going to appreciate this or squander this. I've got to give it to them, and, and I'm not sure I trust them comes to the conclusion that under the sun, even if you're at the top of the heap, it's never enough. Pleasure promises more than it can produce. Pleasure promises fulfillment in life when that fulfillment is only fleeting. It can't produce that contentment and, and joy. In fact, under the promises and under the pursuits and the pleasures that we get under the sun, the more one achieves, the more one needs. Repetition is the key to pleasure. You need just a little bit more. But on the other side of that is the law of diminishing returns, and that is that the more that you get, the less it satisfies. And it brings you to the exact place that the Kohelis finds himself in chapter 2. Ian Proven, as he comments on chapter 2 of the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, gladness of heart, joy, and pleasure. Is it, not, it is not that these things are not good in themselves in Ecclesiastes. Koaleth has discovered that the pursuit of them with a the hope of gain is just as pointless as the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge for that purpose, that gain that comes under the sun apart from or away from God. God is cut out of the picture and it brings an emptiness. It reminds me of the writer John and the epistles where he warns us, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but of the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And remember, just like the Kohelet, he's not saying that there's not pleasure under the sun. And he acknowledges that there are times that God blesses us and brings us satisfaction from the things that we see around us. But it can't be where we build our hope. And it can't be what we rely on in the difficult and challenging times. We must look beyond those things and that stuff to the God who gives us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. Money is not the root of evil. The love of money is the root of evil. And that's what John's trying to communicate here. So those of you who think that if you squander your inheritance, you're more spiritual are just fools. 
And those of you who think that if you could just get one dollar more, everything's going to be okay, you're equally the fool. For God gives and He takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. comes from the book of Job. It is the very words of Job. God bless me. He has now taken it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In essence, that's exactly what the Koalath comes to. The conclusion that he, that he draws in the context of this book, it is not about enjoying and satisfaction and stuff. It is about what role that stuff plays in your life. Thus, says the man who had everything, he discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our lives, in the same corner lurks the darkness of diminishing returns. In the end, achievements and pleasures do not last. Everything is ephemeral, lasting only for a short time. Happiness is a vanishing vapor when our happiness is derived by our stuff and our bubbles burst eventually when we realize it's just not enough. Can I suggest to you that we all live in a bubble to some degree or the other? There's an attempt to insulate ourselves from the life of reality. <laughs> if I could just do this, if I could just have this, if I could just accomplish this, if, then, then I'd be okay. You'll never be okay outside of God who created you in His image for purpose, and that purpose is His glory. You'll never be enough under the sun to bring you happiness. Solomon, who had everything, and I believe the author is Solomon, says, I've been there and done that. I am the authority because I've achieved more than all that we before me in Jerusalem. And I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you, I'm begging with you, it just doesn't work. He warns in the concluding chapter, my son, beware of the things that I've shared with you. Watch out. Why does he say that? Because you can have 1% of everything that he achieved and still be trying to find your satisfaction and pleasure in that 1%, and we do. We live in a throwaway society. And the latest iPhone comes out, and we have to get rid of the one that we have because it's not the latest. And this, this drive and, and this pursuit of something under the sun will satisfy me. Those people who are lamenting the Dobbs decision believe that somehow if they can do whatever they want, they can be happy. And they are the most deceived people in all of the world, for they too will die and come face to face with the God of all of the universe who will do right in His own eyes. God forbid that we allow them down that path and not share with them the hope that life is in Christ, and in Christ there is life, and that is the only thing that satisfies. That's what the writer is trying to achieve and accomplish in the book of Ecclesiastes. Cynic? I think not. Hedonist? Of course not. Here's a man who's tried to sort it out and share what he's learned in a powerful way to those who are willing to listen. I'm reminded of the words of C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I, 
I, I am disappointed. There must be something more. And the light goes on. The coal that's mine. And then is an address to the assembly that this is really what matters most. Fear God and keep His commandments, for that is the sole duty of man. I don't know about you, I'm still learning that, sometimes the hard way. Anybody else? Oh, you got this? Okay. Take pleasure. Enjoy life. Enjoy the times of peace and prosperity and blessing. Enjoy the, the, the family that God's entrusted to you, but realize that there's something bigger and something more, and all of that was never intended to bring you satisfaction. Who am I? I am a man created in the image of God for His glory. Where am I going? I am going to a place where I finally learn to fear God and keep His commandments because that's the essence of life. Am I closer than I was a year ago? I sure hope so. But I'm not home yet. There are things that still pull on my heart. These things that bring pleasure, these things that lie and whisper, if you could just get this, your life would be different. And I have to fight them every single day. So do you. That's the purpose of the book. He's an apologist saying, none of this works. Only God does. I've shared with you and other times, one of my favorite Christian singers and songwriters is Stephen Curtis Chapman. And I couldn't help but think as I read through this book of a song that was critically important to me a long time ago, 25 plus years ago in my Christian life and development. The name of the song was More to This Life. Today I watched in silence as people passed me by, and I strained to see if there was something hidden in their eyes. But they all looked at me as if to say, life just goes on. We're just going for them. We're just trying to hang on. The old familiar story told in different ways. Make the most of your own journey from the cradle to the grave. Dream your dreams tomorrow because today life just goes on. There's more to this life than living and dying, more than trying to make it through the day, more to this life and these eyes alone can see, and there's more to this life alone can be. So where do I start to find every part of what makes this life complete? If we turn our eyes to Jesus, we'll find life's true beginning is there at the cross where He died. It's a reflection of the words of Koheleth in Ecclesiastes, when all is said and done, there's more than just making it through life and enjoying the simple pleasures, and that more is only found in a right relationship with the God of all creation through Jesus Christ. It is what you've been given. It is what I've been given. It is what Satan wants to distract us on, and we must remain faithful. Enjoy what you have, the blessings of life and the goodness of God. But there's more to this life, more to this life. Fear God and keep His commandments.
because that is the essence of life. May we hear, may we learn a little bit more than we knew yesterday, and in the enjoyment of life, may we realize that there's something more, and may you find it. May you find that in Christ alone for His glory. And if you're struggling with that today, welcome to the party. Because sooner rather than later, at least in my opinion, we will stand in the presence of our King and it'll all make perfect sense. It'll all come together. We will become unraveled and undone, and we will sing our praise to the King who allowed us to enjoy life called us to a better place. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the simple text that strips us of all of those things that so easily confuse, detour us, consume us, and promise us things that they can never deliver. May we hear it from the man who had more than any other who lived before him in Jerusalem. And may we take his words to heart. May we enjoy the simple things in life, and may we do it for your glory. And for your glory alone, even in the difficult and challenging times in which we live. Change your perspective. Give us the courage to speak that perspective into a lost and dying world. And find us faithful to the truth and to the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Do you be the glory forever in Jesus' name. Amen.